Moby Dick, chapters 114 to 118. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville, chapters 114 to 118. Chapter 114 The Gilder. Penetrating further and further into the heart of the Japanese cruising ground, the Pequod was soon all astir in the fishery, often in mild, pleasant weather, for twelve, fifteen, eighteen, and twenty hours on the stretch, they were engaged in the boats, steadily pulling, or sailing, or paddling after the whales, or for an interlude of sixty or seventy minutes, calmly awaiting their uprising, though with but small success for their pains. At such times, under an unabated sun, afloat all day upon smooth, slow, heaving swells, seated in his boat light as a birch canoe, and so sociably mixing with the soft waves themselves, that like hearthstone cats they purr against the gunwale. These are the times of dreamy quietude, when beholding the tranquil beauty and brilliancy of the ocean's skin, one forgets the tiger heart that pants beneath it, and would not willingly remember that this velvet paw but conceals a remorseless fang. These are the times when in his whaleboat the rover softly feels a certain filial, confident, land-like feeling towards the sea, that he regards it as so much flowery earth, and the distant ship revealing only the tops of her masts seems struggling forward not through high rolling waves, but through the tall grass of a rolling prairie, as when the western emigrants' horses only show their erected ears, while their hidden bodies widely wade through the amazing verdure. The long-drawn virgin veils, the mild blue hillsides, as over these there steals the hush, the hum, you almost swear that play-wearied children lie sleeping in these solitudes in some glad May-time, when the flowers of the woods are plucked. And all this mixes with your most mystic mood, so that fact and fancy, halfway meeting, interpenetrate and form one seamless whole. Nor did such soothing scenes, however temporary, fail of at least as temporary an effect on Ahab. But if these secret golden keys did seem to open in him his own secret golden treasuries, yet did his breath upon them prove but tarnishing. O oh, grassy glades! O oh, ever vernal endless landscapes in the soul! In ye, though long parched by the dead drought of the earthly life, in ye men yet may roll, like young horses in new morning clover, and for some few fleeting moments feel the cool dew of the life immortal on them. Would to God these blessed calms would last! But the mingled, mingling threads of life are woven by warp and woof, calms crossed by storms, a storm for every calm. There is no steady, unretracing progress in this life. We do not advance through fixed gradations, and at the last one pause, through infancy's unconscious spell, boyhood's thoughtless faith, adolescence's doubt, the common doom, then skepticism, then disbelief, resting at last in manhood's pondering repose of if. 
but once gone through we trace the round again, and are infants, boys, and men, and ifs eternally. Where lies the final harbour whence we unmoor no more? In what rapt ether sails the world, of which the weariest will never weary? Where is the foundling's father hidden? Our souls are like those orphans whose unwedded mothers die in bearing them. The secret of our paternity lies in their grave, and we must there to learn it. And that same day, too, gazing far down from his boat's side into that same golden sea, Starbuck lowly murmured, Loveliness unfathomable, as ever lover saw in his young bride's eye, Tell me not of thy teeth-tiered sharks and thy kidnapping cannibal ways. Let faith oust fact, let fancy oust memory. I look deep down, and do believe. And Stubb, fish-like, with sparkling scales, leaped up in that same golden light. I am Stubb, and Stubb has his history. But here Stubb takes oaths that he has always been jolly. Chapter 115. The Pequod Meets the Bachelor. And jolly enough were the sights and sounds that came bearing down before the wind some few weeks after Ahab's harpoon had been welded. It was a Nantucket ship, the Bachelor, which had just wedged in her last cask of oil, and bolted down her bursting hatches, and now, in glad holiday apparel, was joyously, though somewhat vaingloriously, sailing round among the widely separated ships on the ground, previous to pointing her prow for home. The three men at her masthead wore long streamers of narrow red bunting at their hats. From the stern a whale-boat was suspended bottom down, and hanging captive from the bowsprit was seen the long lower jaw of the last whale they had slain. Signals, ensigns, and jacks of all colors were flying from her rigging, on every side. Sideways lashed in each of her three basketed tops were two barrels of sperm, above which, in her topmast cross-trees, you saw slender breakers of the same precious fluid, and nailed to her main truck was a brazen lamp. As was afterwards learned, the bachelor had met with the most surprising success, all the more wonderful, for that while cruising in these same seas, numerous other vessels had gone entire months without securing a single fish. Not only had barrels of beef and bread been given away to make room for the far more valuable sperm, but additional supplemental casks had been bartered for from the ship she had met, and these were stowed along the deck, and in the captain's and officer's staterooms. Even the cabin table itself had been knocked into kindling wood, and the cabin mess dined off the broad head of an oil butt, lashed down to the floor for a centerpiece. In the forecastle, the sailors had actually cocked and pitched their chests, and filled them. It was humorously added that the cook had clapped a head on his largest boiler, and filled it, that the steward had plugged his spare coffee-pot and filled it, that the harpooners had headed the sockets of their iron and filled them, that indeed everything was filled with sperm, except the captain's pantaloon's pockets, and those he reserved to thrust his hands into, in self-complacent testimony of his entire satisfaction. 
As this glad ship of good luck bore down upon the moody Pequod, the barbarian sound of enormous drums came from her forecastle, and drawing still nearer, a crowd of her men were seen standing round her huge tripods, which, covered with the parchment-like poke or stomach skin of the black fish, gave forth a loud roar to every stroke of the clenched hands of the crew. On the quarter-deck the mates and harpooners were dancing with the olive-hued girls who had eloped with them from the Polynesian Isles, while suspended in an ornamented boat, firmly secured aloft between the foremast and the mainmast, three Long Island negroes with glittering fiddle-bows of whale-ivory were presiding over the hilarious jig. Meanwhile, Others of the ship's company were tumultuously busy at the masonry of the triworks, from which the huge pots had been removed. You would have almost thought they were pulling down the cursed Bastille, such wild cries they raised, as the now useless brick and mortar were being hurled into the sea. Lord and master over all this scene, the captain stood erect on the ship's elevated quarter-deck, so that the whole rejoicing drama was full before him and seemed merely contrived for his own individual diversion. And Ahab, he too was standing on his quarter-deck, shaggy and black, with a stubborn gloom, and as the two ships crossed each other's wakes, one all jubilations for things past, the other all forebodings as to things to come, their two captains, in themselves, impersonated the whole striking contrast of the scene. "'Come aboard! Come aboard!' cried the gay bachelor's commander, lifting a glass and a bottle in the air. "'Hast seen the white whale?' gritted Ahab in reply. "'No, only heard of him. But don't believe in him at all,' said the other good-humouredly. "'Come aboard!' "'Thou art too damned jolly. Sail on. Hast lost any men?' "'Not enough to speak of. Two islanders, that's all.' "'But come aboard, old hardy, come along. "'I'll soon take that black from your brow. "'Come along, will ye? Mary's the play. "'A full ship and homeward bound.' "'How wondrous familiar is a fool,' muttered Ahab, and then aloud. "'Thou art a full ship and homeward bound, thou sayest. "'Well, then, call me an empty ship and outward bound. "'So go thy ways, and I will mine.' "'Forward there! Set all sail, and keep her to the wind!' And thus, while the one ship went cheerily before the breeze, the other stubbornly fought against it, and so the two vessels parted, the crew of the Pequod looking with grave, lingering glances toward the receding bachelor, but the bachelor's men never heeding their gaze for the lively revelry they were in. And as Ahab, leaning over the taffrail, eyed the homeward-bound craft, he took from his pocket a small vial of sand, and then looking from the ship to the vial, seemed thereby bringing two remote associations together, for that vial was filled with Nantucket soundings. Chapter 116 The Dying Whale not seldom in this life, when, on the right side, fortune's favourites sail close by us, we, though all a-droop before, catch somewhat of the rushing breeze, and joyfully feel our bagging sails fill out. So seemed it with the Pequod, 
for next day after encountering the gay bachelor, whales were seen, and four were slain, and one of them by Ahab. It was far down the afternoon, and when all the spearings of the crimson fight were done, and floating in the lovely sunset sea and sky, sun and whale both stilly died together, then such a sweetness and such plaintiveness, such inwreathing orisons, curled up in that rosy air, that it almost seemed as if far over from the deep green convent valleys of the Manila Isles, the Spanish land-breeze, wantonly turned sailor, had gone to sea, freighted with these vesper hymns. Soothed again, but only soothed to deeper gloom, Ahab, who had sterned off from the whale, sat intently watching his final wanings from the now tranquil boat. For that strange spectacle observable in all sperm-whales dying, the turning sunwards of the head, and so expiring, that strange spectacle beheld of such a placid evening, some